Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. You can't be brave if you're tired. Like you cannot be brave if you're tired. And oh my, you just like my my brain just exploded like the emoji. You know, we don't sleep enough. We don't eat right. All of that is making us so tired and exhausted. So it's easier to just do the thing that's easy, which often is not the brave thing. Hi. I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Welcome to another episode in our Mastermind series. Masterminds are episodes where I choose a single topic and then we mine over 500 episodes going back six years for the best of the best. Who had wisdom to share? Who were the greatest teachers on this particular subject? And we do a mashup, a mastermind, where you can hear a bunch of different perspectives on the same topic. Today, We're talking about something that every single one of us has to deal with and needs to learn how to do better. That is grace under pressure. Today's conversation includes wisdom from Ryan Holiday, Tiffany Thiessen, and Jay Shetty, just to name a few. I hope you dig this episode, and as always, if you like it, if you find it helpful, please consider sharing with someone else who might find it helpful as well. Well, I think, two, so I have two two thoughts here. So number one is, I think something that people get wrong about stoicism is like, stoicism is like, focus on what you control. You don't control other people. So if you offend someone, it's like their problem, right? This is like, I think a very male take on stoicism that I <laughs> dislike, right? 
going around not giving a shit about other people or the consequences of your actions or the impact of your words, that's not cool, yeah. right? And so I think some people, like, uh, uh, there might be some take on stoicism where, like, political correctness is bullshit. Like, don't, don't worry about these snowflakes. Just do whatever, do and say whatever you think. I think that's totally missing it because yeah. um, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. And Same. I, and I, I actively try not to hurt people's feelings. I don't build my entire life around not doing it, but I do try to take it into account. And if someone comes to me and says, I've been negatively affected by something you you did or said, I take that and I go, well, was that, did I mean to do that? How, is this, is what I said important to me? And if it's not important to me, then I'm definitely going to be very quick to apologize because it was not only un, unintentional, but like I was just being thoughtless and you've actually helped me to be a bit more thoughtful about yeah. that thing. So I'm going to take that. But I think what you're saying that is important is that just because you made someone feel shitty doesn't mean that you are a piece of shit. Yes. Because there could be so many things between you and them that contributed to that ultimate feeling that you can't possibly put on yourself. And so I, I, I think it's a balance. It's like someone gets upset. You're like, you know, sometimes, I'll, again, I'll have just thrown off something offhand. I won't. I didn't really think about who's on the other side of this. And now that I have thought about it, I don't like that I said it and I won't say it in the future. There's other times where I said what I said and I mean it. And if that offends you, um, maybe you should maybe you should think about what I'm saying here yeah. <laughs> because I have a point. And then the other thing I was going to say that I think the other way to think about it is where it's challenged me as a person is maybe you've noticed this with your parents, but like you talk about something from your childhood and they take that as like a criticism of them as a person. And they're like, that didn't happen or that's not true or you're so sensitive, right? They're trying to argue with you about your feelings. And there's nothing more infuriating than someone trying to argue away the existence of something you feel. And so that's something I try to think about with my kids is like, if, if they say something or they say they don't like something that I did, I can't be so sensitive that like I have to deny the truth of that rather than going, your feelings are your feelings. I know who I am. I know what I was intending. I didn't mean to hurt you. So I'm not like racked with guilt, but I do want to make you feel better. And I do want to not make you feel that way in the yeah. future. And you're just never going to win arguing with that person about how they don't actually feel that way or it's not fair for them to feel that yeah. way or it's hurting you that they feel that way. And just be like, oh, okay, you feel this way. I didn't mean for you to feel this way. So let's like talk about that, yeah. right? And yeah, yeah I think we're, talk we're talking about boundaries, we're talking about awareness, we're talking about empathy. These are all things that are hard under normal circumstances. And I think they're really hard if you didn't have that modeled for you or you had the opposite of that. And so when you think about why people get so mad on social media, well, that's most people. Right. Yeah, and it's it's really hard. I'm going through some version of that myself where it's like you put up the boundary and you hope the person's like, oh, that's what it takes for me to stay in your life. Got it. We'll respect it. But that's not usually what happens. Yeah. And usually they go, well, then fuck you. I'm out. And you have to sit with that. And then there's a part of you that goes, no, 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 no. Like, and then you're back to violating the own boundary. Right. And so- I think just understanding that, like, when you draw a boundary, 
there is a good chance that uh, the person's going to go in the other direction. And that's going to be sad, but that's also kind of what you want or you wouldn't have thought the boundary was necessary, necessary in the first place. Yeah, 100%. When I read Meditations at like 19 years old in my college apartment, sitting at a table like this, it was, it was like, holy shit, where is this? You know, like this wasn't what they talked about in church. This wasn't what my parents talked about. This isn't what my friends' parents talked about. This isn't what they talked about in school. It was like, oh, there's people who have thought really hard about being good at life and being a good person in life that doesn't have, you know, notions of sin attached or hell attached or because I fucking said so attached or, you know, like you're such a disappointment to us. Like there was none of that. It was just like, hey, this is the journey that people have been on for a long time. And I think it just struck me because it was so different than what I, not only than what I had gotten, but it was what I was looking for. And so um, I wouldn't say I have that wisdom. I would say I'm good at explaining and talking about and connecting that wisdom to other things. That's what I feel like I do. Like I feel like the conversation that I'm having about stoicism in my work is um, not from on high looking down, but like looking up with the audience. Yeah. There's this thing from the Stoics that we're, you never step in the same river twice, that everything is different because you bring something different to it. So I think when I was writing the book, I was very much thinking about it as like, a, I don't know, like an analogy would be like, you're a small company and you don't have all these uh, advantages compared to your big competitor, but that makes you creative and therefore you're better than your sort of bureaucratic larger competitor. So I was thinking about it in terms of like how constraints make us creative or create opportunities. And that's definitely one read on the idea that the impediment to action advances action, what stands in the way becomes the way, which is what Marcus Aurelius is talking about, the book is based on. But as I've gone through stuff and seen more things, I've also come to realize that it's less glib than that. Like it's, he's, he's saying that what happens to you happens to you. And that's an opportunity for you to be a different kind of person as opposed to like one door is closed. So you go through this window. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He says basically that every obstacle or impediment is a, is an opportunity to practice a virtue. And that virtue might be acceptance. Yeah. It might be forgiveness. You know, so like when, when you hear the obstacles away, I, and obviously I was writing towards like, hey, this is how you scrappy startup becomes more successful. But I've come to see it more now, like somebody betrayed you, somebody stole from you, somebody hurt you when you were little. N- now you're wrestling with that. What is that an opportunity for you to be as a person that is some form of greatness? Yeah. Right? And so, yeah, my, my relationship to it has changed because you just realize that some things like the loss of someone you love or a pandemic or something that happens in the world, it's not like, oh, where's the silver lining, you know, or like, oh, but now I can do this. It's more like, what is this situation demanding of me? And how can I step up and be that? 
And I think that's a, a more meaningful way to think about it. Yeah, I think um, we saw this during COVID for sure, where a lot of people's arguments over this or that or this or that boiled down to, but I wish this wasn't true, right? And I, I see that even in relations with my spouse. Like, you're, you're mad at this person, but really what you're just saying over and over again is like, I wish the facts were otherwise. Yes. Like, I wish you had not done this. Yes. But they did do it. It did happen. This is the situation that you're in. It's raining. Like, yeah, it's not supposed to rain. And yeah, you wanted someone to bring an umbrella and you told them to make back. Like, you, all, that, all that stuff is true. But it, now this is what it is. And so you can torture yourself and them going in this loop over and over and over again, hoping that if you say it enough times, you can will different facts into existence or you can accept those facts and go, okay, what can I do with this hand yeah. that I have? Yeah. And so I think acceptance has kind of a really nasty connotation. Like there's a passivity in it and a weakness. But, oh, I think it requires so much strength. Well, And not only does it demand an incredible amount of strength and fortitude, but it's also the first step in doing anything about it. Like you can't change something that you deny is not the way <laughs> that you want it to be. You accepting reality on reality's terms is the first step. This is, I think, politically a huge mistake that people make, right? They don't want something to be true about human nature, about other people, about the world, about public opinion. So they just think if we just say things enough times, we can wish away the fact that a good percentage of the population does not agree with us on this versus, hey, this is morally correct, our position. But for whatever reason, and actually we need to understand what that reason is, a large percentage of the population does not agree. The law does not agree. And so how do we change that, right? So the acceptance, like in addiction or recovery, acceptance is the first step in uh, admission and acceptance, is the first step in trying to chart any kind of new or better future. And your denial is not only not true, but it's harming the thing that you purport to believe in. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way, as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker 
has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Did you, have you meditated your whole life? Was that a part of your upbringing? It was more ritualistic and I would say it was closer to prayer. It was more closer to prayer when I was introduced to about 10 years old and it was 10 minutes a day. But I really started meditating and I've been meditating for about one and a half to two hours a day since I was 18. And that became my daily practice. So it's now been around 15 years. I'm going to be 33 this year. So it's been around 15 years of meditating for a minimum of one and a half hours a day. And it's become part of like life and breathing to me. And there are days when I still don't feel like doing it. And there are days that I absolutely love it and feel completely immersed. But I'll say this, that I feel like good habits, you only notice their benefits when you do them for a certain amount of time and then you miss or skip a day. And that to me is the sign that you've got a good habit. It's like eating, like you don't notice that you eat or digest food every day because you do it because you do it. And then the day you don't eat is the day you feel, wow, I haven't eaten. Or if you're sleeping well every day, you don't notice it until the day you have disturbed sleep or having a shower every day. You don't notice it until the day you don't shower. And then you're like, wow, I smell. Right. Right. So it's, it's like a good habit. And that's what meditation has been like for me is that sometimes I may even take it for granted But if I meditate poorly one day or I wake up later one day or my quality of meditation is not as strong, I recognize the difference. I feel the same with working out and meditation or eating right. It's almost like if you just for one day or one weekend just really immersed, and I know you do your beautiful rise events, it's almost like that. Like when you have that immersive experience for a few days you realize, oh, wait a minute, when I hear a good podcast every day, I feel inspired. When I read every day, I feel empowered. When I uh, work out or move, like you said, every day, I feel better and my mood goes up. I think those immersive experiences give us the belief that we should do the five minutes a day. So I agree with you. Sometimes it's great to just start with one simple habit a day that builds. But if you really want to try something that you feel is quite new to you or quite alien to you, dive into it deeply for a day or a weekend. And when you experience that benefit, you'll want to do the five and 10 minutes every day. Disconnect or distance from normality allows you to create a new life. 
And, and that's why almost these conferences or experiences that people go on. And by the way, that was my three years of monk life. It was very much like that. I was completely disconnected from what my reality was in London. And that helped me reformat and uh, refine and, and also just redirect my life. And I feel that's what it is. It's almost like a redirection. So you're right. How do you do that in this scenario? So the way I think about it, and, and I know you said that, you know, you really believe that your community really wants practical advice. So this is one of the things that I think is really resonating with people right now. And it's around how you transform the energy and environment that you're currently in. So there's a beautiful teaching that I learned living as a monk. And it, it goes something like this. It said, location has energy and time has memory. So we'll focus on the first part. Location has energy. And what I mean by that is there's a reason why when someone goes to a RISE conference, they're more likely to discover more about themselves because the energy of that environment, the intention that's been kind of like uh, imbued in that space is coming from that desire to serve, support people and help people grow. So what I'd suggest to people is start looking at whether it's corners of your room and apartment or whether it's rooms in your home, start seeing them as spaces with purpose rather than spaces that are confused. So I'll explain what I mean by that. So often we eat where we sleep, we sleep where we work, and we work where we're meant to eat. And so we end up confusing the energy of every environment. We do everything from the same couch. We watch TV there, we eat there, we work there, we spend time with our kids there. So what I mean by that is there's a reason why when you go to sleep, you struggle to sleep because you're also eating or watching TV in that space. So that's confusing right. the energy. Uh, when you're at your couch and you want to be entertained, but now you're distracted by email, it's because you're confusing it. So really create spaces of purpose in your home where you go to that space to do a particular activity and that simplifies the energy of that space. And it's just a simple habit saying, I sleep in my bedroom, I watch TV on the couch, I work on the edge of my dining or kitchen table and, and I cook in the kitchen, right? It's just simplifying that. So that's one thing that's practical and I think gives you that immersion, at least in that room. The, the second thing that's really powerful is how you can actually give places in your home a different energy and a different immersive experience. And immersion happens through three things and you'll experience that as at a rise or a self-development conference or wherever you go. There are three triggers to environments, sights, what you can see, sense what you can smell and sounds what you can hear. So the first question I'd ask you is, what is the first thing you wake up to in the morning? What's the first thing that you see? And studies show that 80% of us see our phones the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night, right? That's the last thing we see in the first thing in the morning. Why not start your day off with an empowering quote that you love or a paragraph from a text that you love or a picture of your family or a beautiful piece of art that inspires you. That can be an immersive experience. If you just woke up every morning and spent 30 seconds just absorbing that, you're going to feel different. Uh, one of the things that we definitely focused on as monks was that, you know, in the English vocabulary, there are two words for being alone. One is loneliness and the other is solitude. But the one we talk about is loneliness. You never hear people talk about solitude. And Paul Tillich writes that solitude is the strength of being alone, or monks would consider that solitude is the power of being alone, where you discover yourself. And so the ego has constantly been drawn to even false togetherness over scary singleness. And, and because of that, we 
try and stay away from uncertainty around our identity and we'll hold on to false identities or false safe identities. And so whenever we have a disconnect, so when I had a disconnect from being a monk, my ego was crushed because it was naturally crushed because everyone was like, oh, so what are you now? You didn't want to be a graduate. You became a monk and now you failed at that. You're, you're, you're in no person's land. Like, what are you? And, and that was really a, a freeing moment now when I look back, when I was there, it was really painful. I did not enjoy it at all. I have to be honest. But now when I look back, I think, how fortunate am I that I even left being a monk? Because it allowed me to let go of the fear that I had to be anything that people understood. I start doing it with just little likes and dislikes. So whether it's food, whether it's movies, whether it's music, it's, it's just a beautiful way to get to know yourself. So it's almost like when I finish eating a burrito, I know whether I like it or not. Like, it's just simple to me whether I like it or not. If I finish watching a movie, it's easy to just check in with myself and go, did I like that movie? Did I enjoy it? Or did I just watch it because someone else does? And so I find like these little quick sense checks after consuming food, content, media, music, whatever it may be, because all you're doing is you're asking yourself. And that's where all of this begins because most of us are asking like, oh, is that okay for you? Did, did you like that food? Did you like that movie? Like we're always reflecting onto, especially I can imagine parents and mothers who are trying to make sure that their kids are happy. But notice you're just doing what you do with someone else with yourself. The second way, which is a bit more in depth and, and takes a bit more time is what I call in the book a values audit. And this does require a bit more time, but it is really powerful. And I talk about how sometimes we say we value something in our head and our heart, but what really shows what we value is how we spend our time and how we spend our money. Those two things will really show you your values, your bank statement and your schedule. Like those two Preach. things yeah. are the mirrors of what you really value. If you want any change in your life, there are, there are three C's to transformation. So they're coaching, consistency and community without those three mm -hmm. things you can't change anything so this this beautiful conference and event you're doing it has all three of them and and to me that's the heart of it that if you're if you're sitting at home right now or you're listening or watching this and you're thinking jay i haven't been able to find change in my life it's usually because one of those three is missing or is weaker and so we don't have enough coaching, we don't have enough consistency, we don't have community. And when you feel that you're feeling growth in your life, you'll notice it's because you've got those three things aligned. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. A lot of times in life, especially when you have dreams and aspirations, 
things are rarely handed to you on a silver platter. And what my mom taught me is when the opportunity doesn't exist, you better well damn create it. Yes. Just make it happen for yourself. And I loved that spirit. I mean, I don't think as a nine-year-old, I was consciously aware of the fact she was teaching me this profound lesson in life, but I've certainly seen it play out over and over again as I've navigated my life's twists and turns and tried to create opportunities for myself. There's this quote from Oprah that I love where she says, "Um, there's no such thing as luck. There's only preparation, meaning opportunity at a moment in time. And so you needed both of those things for that to be the life that you've lived since then. I, I think that's such an insightful, important point, which is, yes, you you need some of that fearlessness and to innovate and try to create opportunities for yourself. But you basically have to put yourself in a position where you put in so much hard work that at any moment when you're given the opportunity, you're going to seize the moment and deliver. Yeah. And I think yes. that I just had that mindset as a kid, which was, this is really my big dream in life and I can't squander it. I think the thing that really kept me motivated was that every weekend, every Saturday, I was immersed in music world for at least 10 hours of the day. So the Juilliard prep program is one where you do regular school during the week, wherever it is that you live. And, you know, I lived in Connecticut and my mom uh, or my dad would bring me up to New York from Connecticut at, we wake up at 4.30 in the morning, get to New York. And I would basically engage in like nine or 10 hours of classes, essentially nonstop. And if you told me that I had to do that in isolation as a, as a kid, I would have been like, get out of here. There's no way. I definitely want to go to Katie's sleepover instead. But because I was surrounded by like-minded kids, right, it normalized the whole thing for me, right? I, I was like, well, you know... I don't always love practicing, but neither does Krista and neither, neither does Greg, like all, you know, neither, neither does this violinist sitting next to me in orchestra, but all these other kids are doing it and they all have the same dreams that I'm, that I have. And so I think actually that camaraderie and that feeling that I wasn't really alone in this pursuit, that I had all these peers who I really looked up to and really admired and was friends with, um, who were living a similar kind of life helped propel me forward. And, and I share this because I think we sometimes undervalue these community factors when it comes to our own motivation and psyche. It's something that I've realized in a really profound way over time. You know, people ask like, oh, you know, what drove you at the White House? What drove you at various parts of your career? And I feel like the answer is always people. It's always people that are energizing me. I guess that's kind of meta commentary. I mean, I'm a cognitive scientist. So obviously, I'm fascinated by humans, but I think I'm also the most inspired by humans at the end of the day. And so people can be everything. And certainly, I think that helped me as a kid stay really focused. I've always felt pushed by the people around me, no matter what situation I'm in, because you will always find people who are better than you are at like most things in life. But I think the key is figuring out whether... They're pushing you in the right way and along the right dimensions, given your personality and what makes you tick. So a good example of this not being the case for me was I was doing my postdoc in cognitive neuroscience at Stanford back in the day. And okay, hold yeah. on, because you are fancy and I need to understand exactly what that means. <laughs> studying so the mind. For a country mouse. <laughs> like, okay, great. Thank uh, you, studying the mind. So yep. clear. <laughs> Putting people in brain scanners, scanning their brains, looking at images, trying to figure out how that mapped onto their decisions or their emotions or whatnot. Now, as you can imagine, right, like I definitely had imposter syndrome in this lab. These people were incredibly brilliant and smart and talented and motivated. But I remember sitting there, Rachel, in this fMRI laboratory, and it's a windowless room. I'd been there in there for hours scanning people's brains. And I thought to myself, this is not 
the life for me. Like I'm already peering into this dude's brain. I don't know whether he has kids. I don't know what his favorite ice cream flavor is. I don't know what his passions in life are. Given what a social creature I am, I feel like the order of operations is is whack. Like it needed to be the other way around where I really got to know him and then I looked into his brain. So I remember thinking in that moment, oh gosh, um, I don't think I want to do this anymore. So even though I was in this incredible environment, I mean, I think a lot of your listeners will resonate with the feeling that you might be around incredible people, but it's not right for you. It's not the right environment for you. And I think it is just as important in life to recognize when the environment is tailored to you as it is to recognize when it's not so that you can take active efforts to exit that environment and try to find something that is a better match or a better fit. And it can be really hard, right? At this point in my life, I had done my PhD for many years. Then I'd done this postdoc. My whole undergrad major was in studying the mind. Like I devoted 10 years or so to this whole enterprise. And now I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be a professor. I don't want to be an academic. The one piece of the story I need to fill in for listeners is that I lost my ability to play the violin when I was 16 because I had a son in hand injury. And I discovered the mind through this textbook that I was, uh, you know, I was helping my parents clean their basement. I discovered my sister's old college textbook. It was all about how our minds work. And I was just absolutely in awe of the mind. It didn't quite have that same spark as the violin, but it was pretty freaking close. And that was very exciting to me because I wasn't sure I'd stumble upon something that I loved as much as the violin. I'm graduating with this postdoc in cognitive neuroscience, and I have no idea what someone does with that kind of degree if they don't become a professor. So I remember calling up my undergrad advisor and saying, hey, Laurie, thanks for getting me into the field of cognitive science. Don't want to do it anymore. Thoughts? (laughs) And she tells me, and I said, should I try to become a general management consultant? Is it too late to like leave the field? And she said, look, Maya, I know that academia might not be right for you, but I also know that you are genuinely fascinated by human behavior. And so you don't want to have to leave fully. Like maybe you can be a practitioner of the field. I was like, okay, what would that look like? She said, well, I heard about this amazing work that was happening in the federal government. So this was in the the Obama White House where they were using insights about human behavior and decision-making to help millions of low-income kids get access to free lunch every day at school. And I heard about this story and it was so emotionally resonant for me because I had been very acutely aware of all the ways in which insights from behavioral science could, in theory, translate into improvements in people's lives. But now I was hearing about this work happening in real time, right? I think that was the moment where I thought, okay, yeah, I am really interested in human behavior and I do want to do this. And I would love to do it at the intersection of public policy because it means that I can actually help people and, um, you know, have a really hopefully positive real world impact. But then... I did happen to my mom's Juilliard method because I didn't know anybody in the federal government. I had no political connections, no policy connections. Like it was a totally foreign world for me. So my advisor gave me the email address of a very senior official who had just left the White House. His name was Cass Sunstein. And I sent him an email and I was like, hi, I'm Maya. I published nothing of significance. I have no public policy experience, but I would love to work in, you know, at the intersection of public policy and behavioral science. And I did a very classic female thing, which is I 
downplayed myself. And I even wrote in the note, I remember saying, Rachel, like, mm. oh, um, I know I'm not cool enough with to work with the likes of Obama, but if it's at all possible to do something with state or local government, that would be amazing. So I was already stacking the cards against me. And I think this is something that we see ourselves doing all the time, which is wow. just to avoid, yeah. you know, ever coming off as too confident, you know, feeling like you're you're capable than more than you are. Like we're so mm-hmm. allergic and averse to that. And so thankfully for me, Cass Sunstein opened my email, ignored all that crap and was like, here's the president's science advisor's email address. Send him a note and let him know that, you, you know, I sent you along. A week later, I'm interviewing with a senior White House official. It's blowing my mind that this is happening, period, in my life. And there was this profound moment where I was telling him about all of these ideas that I had about ways that we could apply insights about human behavior into the design of public policy. And he's, and I remember I was recommending something for the First Lady's Initiative. And he goes, yeah, I, I know Michelle Obama and her chief of staff. Like, we can make that happen. And that was the moment where I realized, okay, this is real. Like, this is something that can actually happen. Yeah. And then I packed up my bags and... Before I even had a formal offer letter, I had signed a one-year lease in D.C. because I I had the mentality of, I'm going to move here and I'm going to make myself known and present. I'm going to force you guys to give me this job. So thankfully, it all ended up working out. But I just I was so excited about the opportunity. If you build a community of supporters around you, it, it doesn't have to be an intentional thing. It can just happen when you care about people and they care about you and you invest in each other. You don't have to go through these changes alone. You don't have to do them yourself. So I remember when I got the White House interview, I called up five or six of my fellow cognitive scientists, behavioral scientists, and I said, you know, I'm interviewing at the White House in three days and I'm pulling together all these proposals and ideas. Can we can I just have 30 minutes of your time to brainstorm stuff? And I do feel like if we can build these communities around ourselves, it can actually help us fill in the gaps of whatever knowledge we lack at that moment or whatever inexperience we have. Like people can help us rise to the occasion and get to that level. I had thought for so long in my life that if I did something and it didn't work out, that it would literally break me. And so it was a shock to be sad, but be like, oh, okay, I, I can go find another day. And it was this massive aha moment for me that like, I can live my life differently. I can take more risks. I can get rejected. I can fail. And at the same time, because, you know, when I was running that campaign, Rachel, I was so joyful. I was so happy. Every day was like a new day of just feeling like I was alive. Mm-hmm. I was doing things I had never done before. I was in front of audiences I had never, I was figuring things out. It was all hard and exhausting, but I felt very alive. And I feel like I, I want to make sure that listeners really hear that right now, because one of the questions I get asked most often is about this fear of failure. And there's two things that Reshma said that I feel like are so valuable. One is even in the struggle of trying to run this campaign, right? Like you were loving it. It was hard as heck. I'm sure it was physically, um, mentally, emotionally exhausting, but at least you were trying. So many people will never feel that because they won't even allow themselves to try. Uh, The other thing that I loved you that you said was that you woke up the next day and you knew, I'm still here. I'm I'm still here. I can stand back up. I can go again. And what I'm curious about is, do you think if you hadn't pushed yourself into an unknown like that, would you have ever understood that in the way you did? No, I would have been playing my life and living my life safe. 
you know, I would have been, I had for so long in my life been giving up before I tried and be like, Oh, I can't do that. Like I talked myself out of so many things. And because again, I thought I would, if I didn't work out, I, I wouldn't be able to recover. And it was that fear of not being able to recover that held me back from doing things that I, I knew deep in my heart that I wanted to do, or I had an idea to do. So this was a big juncture in my life for me because it like, it shifted my thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it shifted my thinking to realize that, oh, you could try something and it could like your biggest dream and you could, it could not work out and you could have enjoyed the experience and felt alive and be ready for the next obstacle or journey. I think that we raise girls and boys differently. Absolutely. So we encourage boys to, and I have a son, so I, I you know, my family is guilty of this too. Like, you know, we encourage our boys to like crawl to the top of the monkey bars and just jump, you know, to man up, to toughen up. And it's normally kind of through physicalness, but with our girls pretty much from 30 months, we are protecting them, you know, one in the name of, of again, physical danger. So we'll like, be careful, honey, you know, don't swing your swing too high. Like, mm-hmm. is your dress dirty? Let me clean it up. Like, did you get that toy back from her? Like, say sorry. So we're, we're insulating our girls from danger and failure, and we're doing the very opposite with our boys, right? Bravery becomes second nature for boys as they get older, and they launch businesses, right? They ask for promotions. They ask for raises. And for us, it's the opposite, right? We start getting addicted to perfection. It starts becoming part of our identity, and you know, we suddenly find ourselves not applying for jobs unless we meet a hundred percent of the qualifications. Yeah, women are twice as likely to suffer depression as men. So we've all these perfectionism kind of rears its ugly head. And you write about this in your your newest book, right? Like perfectionism kind of rears its ugly head in every aspect of our life. Mm-hmm. And the apology part of it, I find so interesting because as I've been out there with women universally, whether I'm in like Montana or like New York, I'm like, how many of you in the past week were walking down the street and someone bumped into you and you said, I'm sorry. Absolutely. All of us. But I do think that, and then we're going to talk about tactics later. I do feel like it's, you can unlearn it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, but you, but it's like, it's like losing weight, right? You, you fall on and off the wagon and you have to be conscious of it. And it's not like one and done. Like even for me, it's not like, Oh, like I did that one brave thing and now I'm brave now. Like I find myself (laughs) falling back all the time and I have to catch myself. So I think the first thing I would say is you can't be brave if you're tired. Like you cannot be brave if you're tired. You just like my my brain just exploded like the emoji. You cannot be brave if you're tired is the quote of the day. That is so good. Will you unpack that? So – Every woman I know is exhausted. Like we're exhausted, exhausted. It is no wonder, right? We're not as brave as we want to be. And we put off doctor's appointments because suddenly going to the doctor became selfish. You know, we put other people's feelings before us. When we need to go for a walk, we're like, oh, I'll get to it later. You know, we don't sleep enough. We don't eat right. And so all of that is making us so tired and exhausted. So it's hard to kind of lift yourself out. It's, it's just, it's easier to kind of go with the flow, right? And do the thing that's going to make other people happy and not rock the boat and not change that job that you feel like, about or like get out of the relationship that you know you're no longer in love with that person. So it's easier to just do the thing that's easy, which often is not the brave thing. 
So the first thing I say to, to, to women is like, get rested, get ready. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you have to, you can't be brave if you're tired. Yeah. So look, rest is big. And then the, the other thing I've been, you know, the, this idea of practicing imperfection, you know, I feel like we think that if we don't do the perfect thing, like everything will fall apart. So the way I always tell women, this is like e- emails, like every woman I know is afraid to send an email with a typo in it. And she'll like reread and rewrite and reread and rewrite with like a hundred emojis and explanation points. because she doesn't offend anybody. <laughs> and like by that time, it's like, there's no time for anything else. And so what I say to women is like, you know, send an email with a typo in it. And like, I promise you, like nothing will happen because we go quickly from, I have a typo to I'm stupid to I'm an idiot to I'm going to get fired in like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And you realize that the worst possible thing that you think is going to happen probably isn't going to happen. And so this idea of like practicing imperfection is really, or like going to the grocery store without a full face of makeup on or bringing store-bought cookies to your kid's birthday party. Like it's okay. And part of what I think happens is that like, it's like for me, what I feel like the hack on failure is, is to imagine the worst thing that could possibly happen. Like, so for me, I ran for office. I'm like, okay, I'm going to lose. I'm going to be broke. Everyone's going to laugh at me. And then I'm going to have a sworn enemy for the rest of my life. Great. <laughs> I feel like once you visualize the worst thing happening, when it happens, you're like, okay, I've kind of experienced this. Like it's a little meta, but it works. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing for, for practicing imperfection. It's like, you realize that like the thing that I thought was not, was going to happen just didn't. And it's Okay. Yeah. Well, and I also think that we've kind of been told, and I think this goes back to us being raised as perfectionists, that like you have to be an expert in something to start. Whereas I often think that the best business people are are trying to solve a problem that they faced or saw. And so for me, right, I saw like, wait, why are girls not coding? And I was very curious about understanding why that wasn't happening and then started approaching it like in some ways like writing a book report like what are all the reasons why this isn't happening and then and then had this idea and I didn't let the fact that I wasn't an expert almost stop me and in some ways had I been a woman in technology and had gone through this I probably would have had a lot more it probably would have been harder for me to launch Girls Who Code because I would have been like oh no 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 that and that and that and that you can't do this right whereas my naivety is probably what allowed me to now build a movement that's reached millions of girls. Uh, And so in some ways, your passion and not your expertise is a benefit. I always have been someone who loved to be active. So I went to the gym, I would hike, I would, you know, take care of myself in that way. But I think I probably was leaning on uh, things that were making me happy for the moment and probably wasn't the best for my body, mm-hmm. right? Caffeine or caffeine. Like not, like I'm not actually not a huge caffeine person, but I would say wine. Yeah. I would say food, yeah. not best choices in food right. and all those things. And then last December, I threw my back out. Mm. And not in December, not the most important month as oh, a mama. Girl, Rich, I can't even tell you. And this is this was a very big turning point for me because. I'm very much, uh, and my husband would laugh because I have control issues. <laughs> because I like, I like to have my things. Like right. I like to go to the gym. I like being active with my kids. I love to get out of bed and do. And when all that was taken away from me, Ooh, yeah, it put me in a very dark place. I bet. And I'm also not someone who 
who goes into dark places generally. Right. I'm usually very a positive person. I was raised very much that yeah. way. So to kind of feel that was scary. Yeah, I It bet. scared the crap out of me. I bet. And so here I was trying to do the things that you're supposed to do when you throw your back out. I had never done that before. So I was going to my chiropractor and I was doing the icing and the heating and all this kind of stuff. And I, there was one time I went to my chiropractor and he go, and he's known me longer than my husband. And he goes, and he's a very spiritual person. He goes, I just need to tell you something. And he, and I'm like, what? I'm crying on the table, right? It's just, I'm in massive pain. Can't drive, can't get out of bed, none of that, right? So he goes, I'm going to say something to you not to be mean. He goes, but you are not going to get better until you change your mind. He goes, I've never seen you like this. He goes, everything you're exuding and all your energy is dark. He goes, mm. you walked in here and I didn't even recognize you, not because of how you looked, but how you felt. Wow. He goes, you got to turn this around. It's okay, crazy. I just got chills. I know. We all need people in our life and who he's, are willing and, to and say it's that. Truly, it's, it's, and, and I don't even know if he knows how big of an impact that was for me. So, and my in-laws that are from Houston, Texas, they're very much into health as well. And they've always been big... Um, ice plungers. And mm-hmm. we used to always do it when we would go to Houston. When they come to LA, we would do it. And so here I am with my back issues, you know, and going and, and literally it was our turn to go to Houston for Christmas. And I'm on the plane, cr- like crying, like living on Motrin and right. trying to like put on a good face. And I, and it was, I literally had just seen my chiropractor and he goes, you need to change. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know? And so miserable through the whole, you know, sort of flight. And I get there and I'm like, I look at my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And I'm like, please tell me I can do a cold plunge. And so I got into cold plunging again. And I now have completely been obsessed. Cool. It's been like my new sort of thing. And again, I've always been very active, loved going to the gym, loved being outside and paddleboarding and hiking and all this kind of stuff. But I got sort of a renewed sense of like... I don't know what it is, you know? I mean, some people find something that kind of takes them out of a dark place, and I will tell you that's what cold plunging did for me. Yeah. It's the craziest thing. Sometimes it'll be a book for somebody. Sometimes it'll be like, you know, I'm going to drink 100 ounces of water a day. Like, it could be that. That was my thing. And it's been such a wonderful sort of addition to all the wonderful things I was already doing Yeah, that it sped up my recovery really fast, which was great. And then it's really brought – and we, we are doing these kind of community sort of cold plunges with our friends and neighbors Ooh, and parents cool. and, and moms and all this, that it's been – a really kind of cool thing that they that we've brought that our family in Texas was already doing for five years before it was even popular. Nice. I have friends who suffer from anxiety. I have friends who just gave birth, right? And they want to try to, you know, kind of get back into shape. And maybe they're like hurting because they're carrying babies or, you know, right. I have a plethora of different reasons why people are doing it, which is what I love about yeah. it. Yeah. And there are moments when people are are probably having a personal struggle that day and They'll get into the tub with someone they don't really know. And the connection between two people doing something kind of difficult for a few minutes is pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's funny. People are like, I do cold showers. And I'm like, I think cold showers are harder. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's moving water, Right. right? To me, when you're going into a plunge, you kind of sit there still and and there's sort of a thermal layer that kind of creates a little bit yeah. more with the ice bath, not so much with the plunge because there's a filtration happening. Yeah. So that one definitely is a little bit harder. But running cold water, like, mm-hmm, that's like going into a waterfall of right. ice. Like, like, no thanks. Come on, you know, come like, on. I, I actually think that's harder, but I know a lot of people <laughs> do that too. So. The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. 
It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.